open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. This is Atomic Mama. Listen up every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. for Blue Hill Blues, where I'll be spinning vaudeville to down-home to uptown blues and everything in between. That's Blue Hill Blues, Tuesdays, 2 to 4 p.m. Join me, Atomic Mama, for Blue Hill Blues here on WERU. 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and at WERU.org. We are you. Support for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at maineboats.com. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. <clears throat> Today, we have James Francis, director of the uh, Historical and Cultural Center. If there's something wrong with that title, James, uh, tell me. <laughs> it's uh, Cultural and Historic Preservation. Okay, close. <laughs> uh, and also uh, Chris Sokalexis, who's the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, uh, TIPO for short. So we'll be, for, be referring to uh, Chris's position as TIPO, and uh, well, we might explain that later in the show again. So uh, first of all, let's start off with uh, James. Uh, James uh, Francis has been on the show many times before. He was my co-host on a number of occasions. Uh, and it's been a while since we've had him on the show. And so, uh, James, tell me what you've been up to uh, lately. Well, I'm glad to be back. And uh, since um, last being here, I uh, got a promotion. Whoa. So I am... Um, I am still the Penobscot Nation's tribal historian, um, but I also serve as the director of cultural and historic preservation. It's a lot of work doing that, right? Well, well, it is. Um, we have a, a a lot under underneath the kind of umbrella of cultural and historic preservation. We um, we run the museum. Okay. We um, have a, a very active uh, language revitalization program. Um, we have the history, the community history that we're working on, oral histories and such, and uh, also um, the archaeology piece, which is uh, Chris's position, the TIPO. Mm -hmm. So, Chris, tell us about yourself. You're new, so you got more to say. Uh, I'm new. Um, You're new. Yeah, um, and finishing... Uh, well, I guess my first year as as the TIPO, um, which is uh, funded through the National Park Service. Um, I'm one of 100, and, I believe now 147 TIPOs across the country. Right. So when did you start, and and what does that job consist of? Um, the TIPOs across the country, uh, we ensure. Um, that federal agencies uh, comply with Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act, um, in which these federal agencies have to uh, consult with tribes across the country um, on any undertakings, construction projects. Um, they consult with the tribes and make sure that our cultural interests are not being affected, whether it's archaeological sites, um, what we consider sacred sites, and our landscape, our cultural landscapes. 
Yeah. So you go on and, and if there's like a construction site or something and they want to check for, uh, uh, what do you call them, relics or, is that right? You're smiling, James. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I used the wrong term. Uh, for ar- for artifacts. Yeah, ar- I'd, okay. I'd use artifacts. Artifacts. Okay. So if, you, if there's like artifacts there, you, you know, you, you want to go and check and make sure that there's nothing. Yeah, they'll there. consult with me in, beforehand, before the project even starts. And I do background research, um, not only for, for the tribal, but um, I work with uh, the state um, to see if there's any archaeological sites that are known. Mm-hmm. And then if uh, if they're not, then... The undertakings proceed. Yeah, and if they are, um, that's when it gets kind of tricky, I guess. Um, <laughs> we, that we have a uh, we have a problem. Yeah, I mean, um, more times than not, um, there really isn't. But there are a lot of sites that aren't known in Maine, yeah. especially in Maine. Yeah, and I bet that there are some sites that you don't want known. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and then um, that's that's when we really step in and, and talk to these uh, federal agencies. Yeah. Okay, James. Yeah, uh, one of the one of the problems that uh, came up in the last couple of years that's uh, relevant to the TIPO position was, <coughs> excuse me, a uh, construction project on, on Indian Island um, that um, turned up a uh, ancient uh, gravesite, uh, red, red ochre. Yeah. And um, so... What um, all all digging had to stop, and a uh, archaeological survey had to be done. Documentation. Where, where was that? Was that like downtown, or I mean downtown, down street, or? Yeah, that's our downtown. Downtown, down, yeah. Down street, <laughs> uh, down street um, right in front of where the old hall used to be. Oh yeah, yeah. right. So um, one of the most congested parts of the reservation, and they were putting in a new sewer line, and um, they came across this, and. Um, it, it it impacted the timeline for the construction project significantly, um, but it's important work and um, that needs to be documented. Right. And it was nice to see these ancient um, burial sites uh, right in our home community. Hmm. Were those uh, objects repatriated once they were dug up? Did- what, I guess the question is, what did you find there specifically? When uh, there, there was some items um, that were found, and um, the community is uh, looking at what exactly to do with those items. I see. Um, they are um, in a secure spot that's uh, you know climate controlled at this point, um, but where where those are going, um, they they won't be repatriated. Um, the term repatriate is when. Uh, used when uh, museums, when they have some tribal holdings, are going to give those back back to the tribe. Okay, so i got to get my terminology right here. Um, are there instances where when artifacts, and we find that they are uh, what we consider to be sacred artifacts, where they're reburied? Chris. These, these particular artifacts? or Well, any in general. Um, yeah, we actually um, made a repatriation claim. Um, it was originally started by the former TIPO, and um, I helped finish it with the Carnegie Museum mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh, and we repatriated um, 19 tools and one human remains. So, so you, those you, those went to the uh, Wabanaki Repatriation Committee, and those will be uh, reburied this spring. Okay. With ceremony, I would... Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right, James. Continue. <laughs> well, so um, so our department is uh, serves a um, wide uh, range of um, duties. Um, our One of our language teachers works with the teens at the teen center and uh, teaches cultural education within the community. Um, me and Chris uh, currently are engaged in a um, an oral history project um, that uh, we're quite excited about. And um, the the reason, um, well, not the reason, but it's uh, it's a project that takes um, an old 
item, which is a chief's collar and cuff set, which um, has housed in a museum. Mm -hmm. And it's bringing it back into the community and essentially back into service. Right. So that's that's part of a project that we're going to get to in a minute. Oh, okay. Because uh, I, <laughs> I want to know what else uh, you guys do. And I, I know that for a while, and I'm not sure if this is ongoing that you've had, you've got thousands of photos. Uh, and, and you were you had um, a time where you would have like the seniors come in and you talk to them, show them the photos, and yeah. Were, tell me about that. Well, um, you know, over over hundreds of thousand thousands of cups of coffee sitting with elders in the community. Um, I started to um, collect uh, photographs. Um, I'd find some online, but most of the time it came from community members who would give me an old shoebox or an old album, and I scanned them in. And um, we amassed a collection of uh, between ten and 15,000 photographs. And um, I, I don't consider these photographs mine. They're, they're the people's. They're Penobscot people's. And so I, I do everything I can um, to share them. But also, um, a lot of times we don't know who everybody is in the photographs right. and so um, a few years back we had an oral history project through the National Park Service where I took uh, 350 photographs from the Spank Frank Speck collection and brought them out into the community and tried to get um, the elders to identify who these folks were and part of that process was to hold these three community forums um, so that instead of just interviewing one person, you get a, a room full of elders, you know, feed them dinner, show them a picture show, and um, a lot of stories came out of that. I bet. So we were scheduled to do three through the grant, and on the third one, I, you know, thanked everybody for participating and uh, told them this was the last one, and... Um, uh, they, they weren't going to let that happen. So um, we put up a photo gallery, actual printed pictures in the hallway of the community building, about 15 pictures. And so about every eight weeks, I would rotate those out, those pictures on the wall, and that would coincide with uh, Elder's History Cafe huh. as I started calling these evenings. Uh, the department would... Uh, the cultural committee and the department would cook a cook a meal um, for the elders, and they would come. and It was uh, it's a very popular event. Wow! Does that still go on, or do you? Um, it, it's going on now, um, not just for the elders though. We're in the middle of uh, another project called the Thirteen Moons Drum Project, where we've taken the the Penobscot calendar yeah. and created. 13 13 sided drums and on each of the drums we painted an image that reflects the moon um, that um, each of the moons so for instance um, last last moon was um, was called old moon and so an image was painted on the drum that reflected that uh, the, the moon before was um, the moon where ice forms on the margins of lakes and so there was an image painted that reflected that um, so each month on the on the new moon we have a social gathering to introduce these drums to the community as they're created and um, during that evening we also have a historic picture show great so it's a social potluck and a historical photo gallery and we also, um, the Cultural and Historic Preservation Department has a has a Facebook, Penobscot Culture, and um, we share historic photographs with travel members there. And um, it's it's not only uh, about you know just sharing these photographs, but for me, it's a way to um, get information. Um, I don't I post a picture. I don't know everybody in it. So um, through that process almost instantaneously you know within 15 minutes um the photographs identified uh, the stories being told online um so the the whole 
uh, historic picture thing has really been a catalyst uh, for people in the community to to share stories. Well, that's great. Um, the, uh, the the pictures you said that you you researched uh, that uh, Frank Speck took. So what yeah. was it during his time? But uh, what what years did those photos cover? Well, they, um, a variety of years. The, the ones that Frank actually took with his camera um, were in between the, the uh, 19-teens and up into the 1920s. Okay. And, um, but also in that collection were postcards that he collected. Um, a lot of these postcards were copyrighted by AFOR, Old Town, Maine, in 1912. However, um, he just copyrighted copyrighted those at that time uh, we believe that some of those images are, are older than that yeah i um image comes to mind of uh Lobbit. yeah she's on one and i'm not sure what the year that was but it was pretty old i would think yeah you um yeah andrews yes yeah yeah um she, she, she was that was probably in the 19 teens okay 19 um Okay, and uh, so your photo project in, in, in ca uh, Senior Cafe, is that what you called it? Elder History Cafe. Elder History Cafe, okay. <laughs> Me and terminologies today, they're just not, not going too well. Uh, okay, so that part of your project, uh, you know, it must have been really um, eye-opening and I'm wondering if, you know, I know you probably got all these stories down that was told dur during the, the cafe times. Mm -hmm. and yeah. So I guess my next question is, um, what do you plan on doing with those stories? Well, uh, there's, there's a couple of things. Um, we've um, made a small book, which uh, I'm still edit editing, um, with each of the pictures that were identified and amassing as much information, whether it was through the interviews with the elders or other genealogical information and um, historic records about each of the people. So that what you get is like a, a, a book of uh, kind of bi biographies of, of different people. Um, we also, when I interviewed the elders, I recorded the interviews. And um, so um, we're working on putting together a small video um, with historic pictures overlaid with um, the audio of people talking. There, there are some real gems. I bet. And, um, and I, I went through all of them and uh, collected all the laughter. And so uh, there's a... Um, there's there's got to be two minutes long of every, the all these different laughs and it's uh just fun to hear that um the the project was a was a great great success and uh, the elders really enjoyed um sitting there and sharing stories yeah and they love to tell funny stories oh yes so there's got to be <laughs> some really good ones um so this this video that we're creating uh, will be shown in the community. We have um, seven, I guess, closed-circuit TV sets in the community, uh, which we use to um, broadcast language um, and also advertisements in the community. But the, the main function is to um, bring the Penobscot language back to Penobscot people's ears. And so um, places like the waiting room of the clinic or the elder center, the daycare, the teen center, um, they have these TVs and um, sharing this oral history project on those TVs. That's uh, where we're moving towards right now. Yeah, and and those are very well placed. I mean, I've seen a number of them myself. They're they're really uh, really informative. Um, so, is that your what other projects? I mean, you, said, you mentioned language, your language project. Yeah. Uh, what are you doing with that? Are you, no, what aren't we doing with that? Okay. We're in the, you know, in in the past, you know, it seemed like we're in the mode and, and it was often called, uh, 
you know, the language preservation. Right. And for me, preserves are something you put on the shelf. And um, one thing, first thing I did was to stop calling it preservation and, and switch it. And because I think it switches the mentality, um, switch it to um, language revitalization. So it's something that we want to revitalize. And what we're doing is um, we have a very small staff. We have a language master, Carol Dana, and we also have a language instructor, Gabe Paul. And where Carol is um, uh, ready to retire in the next um, well, few years or, or more, um, Gabe is a 28-year-old young man who's um, extremely uh, well-versed in the language. So we were looking for ways to... Um, get the most bang out of our buck with those two. Um, so we've started the task of um, recording the entire Penobscot Dictionary wow. um, audio files. So um, a dictionary that was uh, created by uh, Carol Dana, uh, working with Dr. Frank Siebert and, and, a, and a couple other workers uh, back in the 70s and in the 80s. Um, and so this... Um, large book of words and phrases um, are now um, her and Gabe are able to read those um, characters in the Penobscot language and so they're recording all of them so that we'll um, for a long time have those words available to us. That must be a long process for them though I mean are they finished? Have they finished it? Oh no 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 we're we're, we're about uh, uh, just we just finished um, our first year of a three-year grant that we had to do this. So that's um, and what this allows us to do these these audio files. That's why we put the TVs up. This allows us then to create things that incorporate pictures, sound, and also the text, both in English and in Penobscot. So it becomes this huge learning. Uh, opportunity for people to learn the language and um, what we wanted to do is also uh, take advantage of this technology so uh, the department also has uh, 15 apprentices language apprentices um, the all the whole staff at the uh, the daycare we have staffs at, uh, people who are staffed at the school at the teen center uh, at the youth program so that um, it becomes a trickle-down effect. And the apprentices are all manned with um, iPads, so they have access to the digital, uh, the new up-and-coming digital uh, information. Wow, that's great. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's very exciting. Yeah, and, and it's sort of like, I remember I attended a, a language conference a couple of years ago, and they were saying that, uh, you know, you can go to class and learn a word but it's not like it's not like if you were sort of like in the environment where you could see what was going on because we're so such a visual uh people yeah and a lot of our names are are descriptions of places so i I think that's a really great tool yeah and you know having having this stuff play play on the tv it isn't for me it isn't about you know, I don't think people are going to become fluent from it. Right. But um, what has happened is that um, the language has become less intimidating to people. That they, while waiting to go into the dentist, they hear a word or two that they, they're familiar with. We actually did a survey in the community um, about two years ago and um, found close to 200 words that and up Penobscot that was still used in the community. So um, when, you know, people start to hear that and they become less intimidated about the language and they start inquiring about what times, what time of class is, how can I get involved? We have language potlucks two times a month where language class over dinner. So um, we're really trying to um, get out in the community and um, get the language um, revitalized. Yeah, I, I I remember a few words, but I, we couldn't translate those over the radio. So <laughs> <laughs> those are the things that stick with you, you know. The right. <laughs> uh, anyway, so 
let's talk about the uh, uh, the collar project, the the chief's project. Yeah, um, 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 this is this is a project that um, you know was kind of born out of that oral history project with uh, the Frank Frank Speck photos. Um, you know, I as as the tribal historian, I was in charge of going to the Hudson Museum each time we elected a chief and we had an inauguration to collect this white box that contained the Penobscot collar and cuff set. So um, traditionally, the chief's office, um, they would wear a very highly decorated beaded collar and uh, cuffs, and, and and they match. And uh, also a headdress. But each time um, we had inauguration, I'd have to go fetch this very sacred item from a museum. And it was in a box that was like hermetically sealed. I mean, we could see in it, um, but the um, the collar and the cuffs couldn't be touched, which um, is prob- prog- problematic uh, because in the inauguration ceremony, it calls for... Um, the chief to don these things. And when they're in a box or medically sealed, you know, I, I, I pose the question, are we really um, fulfilling the ceremony as our ancestors intended us to? It's kind of symbolic too, I think. In yeah. a way, because, you know, there, you have these items that are symbolic that you can't really touch. You just see. Mm. You know, in, in the ceremony, it says that the collar represents the weight of responsibility on that chief's shoulders, you know, and, and if he's not putting that on, you know, and the cuffs are shackles that shackle him to the tribe. Um, so I was, um, it always bothered me that, that 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 was the case with this item because it's, this is one of our traditional sacred items that uh, museum houses and uh, we can borrow. So um, during that oral history project, when I was taking those photos around to of Frank Specks to the community, um, there was a picture of Peter Nicola, and he was inaugurated in 1910, and it's um, well documented in Penobscot Man the ceremony of the inauguration process of Peter Nicola. And in the picture, Peter has that collar and cuff set on. And um, when I showed this to the elders in the community, they said, we need to get that collar back. You know, our, our chief should, should have that collar. And so um, it was nice that the National Park Service, who funded the first oral history project, um, I noted that in my application for this current oral history project. Um, so the whole idea um, to kind of get it back really wasn't going to happen, right. you know, to physically get that item back. And I recall a similar situation where I was fixing a photograph of my friend Charles Shea. He's a he's a um, elder in our community. He's going to be, I think he's 89 or 90 this spring. Um, and a famous... Famous person, you know. Yeah, yeah. The, and so yeah. Uh, Charles, um, his his nephew had found an old picture of uh, Charles's mother in the garage, and it was it was damaged. And um, I dabble a little in Photoshop, and so I cleaned up the photograph. There was a tear in it, and as I was cleaning it, I noticed that underneath several necklaces around her neck, uh, Florence had on a collar, much like the the chief's collar. And as, as I looked at it a little more closely, I realized I knew which collar it was. And we had received a disk of images from the Smithsonian. And so I jumped on that folder in, on my computer and I got to the collar section and triangle by triangle, line by line, squiggly line by squiggly line, she was wearing the collar that was at the Smithsonian. Hmm. So I brought this to Charles's attention, and just like the other elder said, he said, "I want it back." <laughs> and 
So the Smithsonian, you know, uh, they weren't going to give it back, obviously. Um, so we did some um, some research and found out how the Smithsonian got it. There was these commercial ethnographers who bought it from somebody in the community, and that's how they that's how George right. Hay got it. And then, right. his, but then there's a question too of you know when you take it out of that protective atmosphere, it's just going to deteriorate. Yeah, yeah. So so, yeah. so what Charles what Charles did, he he had the uh, the ability, the resources to hire an artist in the community. Uh, Jennifer Neptune flew her to the Smithsonian where she examined it and actually made a, a replica of the collar, which uh, Charles now has. But she, there was a possession. long process for that, right? Oh, she, of course. She went down, she what, took photos and oh, she had, studied she it. Oh, she studied it. And she, and did she actually did study. the beadwork and, I mean, tremendous oh, amount of time in that. Ab- absolutely. And if uh, if anybody wants to see this, then go to charlesshea.com. There are pictures of him wearing it. And also, um, if you go to the Hudson Museum, Museum website, you can um, look for Jennifer Neptune. She's actually making that collar in a video mm-hmm. on that website. But what was amazing to me and kind of sealed this project in my mind was that um, we had a kind of a press junket for when um, Jennifer was going to reveal this to Charles. And um, I, I can... I can, it still gives me kind of goosebumps. But when she placed that collar on him, there was a wave of energy that went through the room that almost knocked me on my heels. And, um, and I realized that as many times as I had seen these collars in the museums, in that box, in photographs, I've never seen anybody get one put on them. Yeah. And it was a, it was a magic magical moment, and I knew then that um, we needed to have Jennifer um, redo the chief's collar and cuff set. So I mean that to me, um, you know, is is where we're at right now. I mean, it's the voice of the community. The elders wanted it back. We have the artisans within the community to make that happen, and um, you know it's. Just but all that's, those things but came that's amazing too that we still have the artisans that can do that. Oh yeah, you know they they didn't pass on or whatever. They still have that knowledge and that and that talent. Now is she working on that collar now? Yeah, she. In fact, she um, she's working on it, but she's also working on it um, publicly. So every Thursday or Friday it, it kind of bounces around uh, she comes to the Cultural and Historic Preservation Department and works on it for the afternoon live um, so that people can um, see what she's doing um, so in addition to getting the National Park Service grant to do this um, we also applied for a NEFA grant, the New England Foundation for the Arts, to start the process uh, a little earlier um, so we got the NIFA funds to do uh, just the cuffs. And so she started the cuffs. Um, and uh, the plan is to um, get an apprentice so that um, when we go to do the collar, um, we can apply to NIFA again for their master apprentice program and um, have someone in the community learn how to bead and do these collars and kind of quicken the process a little bit. So right now she's, she's doing the, 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 um, the cuffs, the cuffs. Yep. And then she's going to start. Right. Right. But she's ordered all the material um, for, for all of it. Um, Some of the beads were, were very hard to find. Um, They just don't make, some of these types of beads uh, anymore and it takes a considerable amount of some of the beads and so um, she has to she has an antique bead dealer she deals with and uh, even the cloth sometimes um, she has to buy special cloth um, for for the project now is this uh, what she's doing is this being like uh, uh, put on video oh yeah we're documenting the whole process absolutely Great. Yeah, you'll see it on the TVs in the community, I'm sure. Yeah. Along with language. Okay. That seems uh, to be my standard answer. Uh-huh. Everything's yeah, going yeah. On the okay, TVs. so uh, is there like a, a deadline for this? Is there like a. Well, uh, we're hoping. I mean, the plan is um, 
is to have it done by the uh, the next chief's inauguration because that's when we're going to need it. So we're talking. We got about a, we got a, we got a year. So the next uh, so we'll have an election this fall for our chief's office, and then they'll be inaugurated in January. So um, that's our timeline. We have a year. Wow. Coming Hear right that, up. Hear that, Chris? We have a year. <laughs> and and how long did it take for her to do the first caller? I mean, uh, it took was... it took considerable amount of time. But then yeah. there was travel to Smithsonian right. for that. And yeah. So we don't. Yeah. Yeah. So she's she's working diligently at at it, and um, you know they uh, it, it's coming out fantastic. It, I get excited every week when I when it comes in for a visit. Um, but the beadwork is is just a part of the overall project. Um, because we applied for an oral history grant, uh, one of the things we also wanted to do was a um, was an oral history project around uh, the chief's inauguration process. Um, so um, we are interviewing all of the former living chiefs and um, asking them questions about. Um, their inauguration process and um, their time in office, uh, so we kind of get a kind of get these different little snapshots of um, people's philosophy sometimes, but also you know what it meant to them to be uh, there on that stage, be inaugurated as as a Penobscot chief. Yeah, and we're also doing historic research where we're looking at documents. You know, those times that uh, it was documented in the newspaper, the chief was. This chief making ceremony uh, was happening, and there are also some songs. There's chief making songs um, that we're we're looking into um, and bringing those out. And so, at the night of the inauguration, in addition to introducing the collar cuff, and also there's a headdress too, um, we are um, we're going to be presenting a kind of a history presentation of the inauguration process through time um, because there's clearly errors. You know, Mm -hmm. we had an era once where um, if you were chief, you were chief for life. And under the state's influence, that was changed in the mid-1800s. And then um, we had something called the old party, new party, which was uh, just a a very cumbersome system, uh, state-introduced system where... We would elect an old party chief for a year, and then the next year we would elect a new party chief for a year. And this went on till the 1930s. And then at that time, um, we went with the um, the system we have now, which is which we call the modern era, and that's to elect a chief uh, originally up until this last term for two years. Um, this last term um, was changed to four, and that was changed because... Uh, the current chief, Chief Francis, his second term, he ran unopposed. And so, um, you know, it was, it seemed clear that the the people wanted him for another two years. So they decided to uh, change the, the ruling and make it a four-year term. Yeah. And the other, the other point to that is, too, that two years, you really can't get a lot done. You know, you really need four. And I could say more, but I... <laughs> I think it takes two years just to undo what the last exactly. guy did, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. So four years is good. You know, one of the thing about the the collar, the cuff set, and and all that is uh, is the headdress. You know, and oh, yeah. yep. there's um, in our community, there's I. I always have my ears open to kind of find find things out, but there seems to be some misunderstanding or confusion about what that looks like, what that headdress looked like. We know it's the feathers go straight up, uh, but there's a question of what kind of feathers. Were they turkey feathers? Were they eagle feathers? Um, in the case Were of, they ostrich you know, feathers? Yeah, in the, in the case of Frank Lauren, you're, yeah. a relative of yours, yeah. he used ostrich feathers. Yeah. So those questions are there. So what we decided to do, um, we're going to be holding community forums and um, asking the community. And so at the end of those community forums, um, we'll have a, we may not get the, the answers that we need, but we'll at least have a headdress that the community picked, not just me and Chris. Right. I mean, you know, what I hear about uh, Big Thunder's headdress was, you know, he's a showman, and so he just put the ostrich feathers in there for show. 
And that, you know, it could be. Uh, he did get a lot of attention. It, well, he certainly did. Uh, but then my, my thought is, did we actually have ostriches up here? No. Was there any right. time ever in, in history that that, was, that that happened? I don't know. I, I would highly, highly doubt it. I mean, that would unless it came over on a ship, you know. So, but that was that was the thing about Big Thunder. <laughs> he couldn't make anything believable. That's right. So, um, the kind of last part of this is, um, and and this this will happen before the inauguration. Um, once the collars complete, once the cuffs are done, and once that headdress is, um, you know, ready to put on, um, we're going to bring all the chiefs together um, in a and have a kind of a celebration. And what we want to do is um, put this collar, cuff, and headdress on each of the chiefs in succession uh, as part of a, a ceremony. It would be a new ceremony. Um, but as part of a ceremony to kind of bring the collar, the cuffs, and the headdress into service. So, um, you know, we'll fly Jerry Padilla in from Albuquerque. We'll, you know, Barry will drive in from Solon. And everybody will come together and have a big community meal and uh, bring these items into service. And um, I think that's, uh, to me, that that evening will be be exciting I think yeah and I think that uh, we should also invite all the old council members and the oh, tribal absolutely. reps as well mm-hmm. do you know any tribal reps uh, <laughs> I don't know maybe one <laughs> Chris you haven't said anything no what are you thinking over there I don't know a big part of this project um, for me that gets me excited is researching the old songs um, oh. being a singer myself you know, bringing these songs back into our community um, that may have not been sung 40 years, 50 years. Or longer. Or longer, you know. Um, and that's what, I mean, the whole project to me is exciting, but... Um, so you'll be the singer at the next ceremony? Um, that I'm not sure of. I mean, there's a, a number of singers in our community. Um, maybe we could put together a group. You know, yeah. of of all the different singers together and and sing these songs. Yeah, as as, awesome, a, as a really. community, uh, yeah. we have like four drum groups on on Indian Island, and I think a collaboration of all of us together would would definitely help bring the you know bring the community together as well. Yeah, absolutely. Anything but, else? But for me, no. That's that's the exciting part, and and to see Jennifer, um, these cuffs coming along, they're beautiful. They really are. They're just so vibrant and um, you can feel the energy of, from these as she's working on them. Yeah. And I encourage people to come in and visit the Language Lounge mm-hmm. at the Culture Department. Yeah, and I, I just want to say that I was there too when the collar was placed on Charles and you're right, it was a, an electric sort of environment there. And I, I was lucky enough to get some pictures of that too and I know you were too. So. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely have, uh, have some, some pictures of that. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, um, I, I just want to officially thank the, uh, the National Park Service because, um, you know, to have this um, tribal heritage uh, grant available to tribes uh, really has allowed us to um, kind of regain a, a foothold on, on our history, our, our community history. You know, one thing that came out of um, that original history with the pictures, um, you know, I, I spent my, my adult life reading books about Penobscot people. And um, I learned more in one summer interviewing the elders with these pictures about what it really means to be Penobscot um, than I ever learned in a book um you know i have this mental map in my head and 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 i made a physical one too um but a snapshot in time about where everybody lived on indian island and um it's fun to to show elders that um because it's uh it's another one of those things that uh prompts a story and um you know for 
for a community that has been studied uh, for a long time, you know, uh, conducting an interview for me was really intimidating at first. You know, it took me, I don't know, five years being the tribal historian um, before I conducted my first interview. And instead of doing that, what I would do was uh, go have coffee with an elder, call them up, say, hey, can I stop by, introduce myself, so they could get to know me. And as I would breach that question about, you know, can I interview you, they were like, no, no, I don't know the language. I don't know any of those old stories. And I realized they thought I was looking for something, quote, unquote, Indian. And they would say that. They say, uh, no, you know, we moved to Connecticut when I was just a kid because my, my dad had to go find work. And I says, oh, well, tell me about that. And so... You know, although it's not about Gluskop and the turtle or these fantastic stories, it is a story about, you know, modern Penobscot existence, you know, of how during World War II, our community, you know, was almost devoid of people because they were either in southern New England at work in the factories or at war. And so, you know, I think Indian Island was one of the most... Um, had some of the most people on the war effort than any community in Maine per capita. So, I mean, that's that says something. Yeah. So, um, you know, these oral history projects are, are really important, um, you know, because it allows um, our tribal members to have a voice. And, you know, it's not about going in there and, you know, asking these scripted questions. It's about going in there and... Um, just getting people to talk because we all have a story. Just how can you coax that out of them? Yeah, absolutely. And then we were sort of brought up in the past. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's really what's current isn't valued as much as the past. And I think we're sort of slotted into that time in the past where we're so focused on that, we're not really focused on the present and the future which is really, and that we can be doing some amazing things for, for future craft and, and future uh, design and whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. We didn't stop living 100 years ago. Right. I think Frank Speck is, is, a, is a perfect model because when he came here to study Penobscots to write the book Penobscot Man, he was looking for that pure Penobscots. And to him, that meant someone who was living off the land in the woods. If you were working in the shoe factory over in town, he didn't want to talk to you. So, you know, I think that mentality of, you know, when someone comes in and wants to interview you, they're looking for, you know, something that of antiquity instead of something that's alive and current. And, um, you know, for me, it's it's about alive and current. And the funny thing is that, is that you know, the, the like, spec and... Uh, those people that came in to interview our ancestors. You know, our ancestors played with them. You know, they didn't tell them all the truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost funny, you know, sometimes. I think they did it as a joke, too. I mean, so they, they write down what the the ancestors were telling them is, is like the gospel truth or whatever, and, and they believe that. So, you know, I, I kind of get a kick out of that. Yeah, and common sense will tell you, you know, that, you know, what where those those things are when you see them written down. Yeah. Any comment? Chris? No thoughts? Okay. So with that project, is that your only last, is that your last project, the collar and the, and the cuffs? Are you working on something else? Future plans? Well, um, yeah, there there are a couple things that are that are that are brewing in the mix. Um, we're um, we're looking to put in a uh, resource library uh, geared towards uh, main teachers to help uh, them um, with the challenges of um, what is affectionately called LD two ninety one, but I think it's. Uh, Main State Law, Chapter 403, 2001, something like that. 
And uh, do you, you know, got me on that one. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't, wasn't that your? Bill? That was my, that's mine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, we we found that um, uh, well-meaning teachers just don't um, know where to turn sometimes, and so uh, we've been at the Cultural and Historic Preservation Department for many years. Uh, we've been. Tr- creating curriculum and uh, doing other things, making resources available to teachers. And um, I think that uh, the next logical step is to um, um, take a property that was um, uh, being donated to the cultural department on on the reservation and um, create a resource library, uh, a place where um, teachers can come and uh, or contact and get information. Um, it would, I see it all digital. So everything written about Penobscot uh, digitized as PDFs and you know easily accessible. Less paper is is better, um, as far as I'm concerned. Why print it when you can email it? Um, <laughs> so uh, that's um, that's something that we're we're looking at now. And kind of the dovetail with that, um, we're also um, looking at uh, a, a cur- curatorial, I guess, curation facilities, a, a museum, uh, but more uh, on the lines of a storage facility. Um, part of um, the repatriation NAGPRA, uh, Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, um, if a museum gets federal funds, they're required to try to get back funerary items and other ceremonial items back to tribes they belong to. But the the hitch with that for us is that these tribes have to have a facility that meets federal standards um, for climate control and temperature um, to help uh, continue preserving those items. So... Um, one of the things that has been a kind of a hot ticket item in the community, especially after finding those those relics and artifacts in the ground down street in the in the red paint sites, was um, you know, well, we don't want to send them out of the community, um, but we need a facility like this in the community, and so um, I kind of see those two facilities uh, kind of dovetailing um, a little bit. Um, and you know the we have a uh, we had a site of as an of an old hall down street um do you remember the old hall i do and i wanted to ask you about that yeah. and i think i have in the now there's a, a photo in the chief's office yeah of inside of the old hall right now are there other photos of the old hall inside or out i have a picture of the old hall on the outside yeah um and only the one um but there it's you can see it's a roof line in several of the pictures you know that postcard image taken from across the river in um what what i was proposing to do for this curation facility is recreate the old hall wow on the on the outside look like the old hall Uh like the olden days Uh, but on the inside state-of-the-art facility with climate control yada 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 that that sounds great um, yeah you know and it would help uh revive what was called the commons area mm. which was down streets and um, um kind of reestablish that as a as a gathering place because uh, yeah. our gathering place has changed right it's moved uh up river on the island a little yeah. bit and what i liked about that old hall was uh they would they would have these uh, uh gatherings like on saint patty's day mm-hmm. um <laughs> it would be politically unacceptable these days, but they had like minstrel shows and uh, like stand-up comedy. It was really it was funny, uh, and and the community got together and they had a great time at that hall. Yeah, just so, so like a used it as a, like a mini theater, sort of a, a playhouse, and it was great. Yeah, and they had the uh, the meetings there, and uh, the, a lot of the chiefs' inaugurations, as we're finding out in our research, were were held uh, there and it, that was actually the the new hall is what they called that one uh the old old hall was up uh up by the school in uh what was uh, for many years the baptist church hmm. it was converted to a church later interesting we won't go into those stories but, uh... 
<laughs> that, that building has some real interesting uh, stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, so, Chris, I haven't picked on you for a while. No. <laughs> What's the, is there... Is there like a, a next project for for you in the uh, architecture, architecture, yeah, archaeology uh, piece? Um, yeah, I have a few uh, few items I want to I want to look at. Um, I know this past summer I worked on a large uh, dam relicensing project mm -hmm. um, up up north in Medway. I'll continue to work on that um, over the next year or two. Um, with an archaeologist they hired yeah. um, uh, the owner the owners of the of the dam yeah. um, but for me personally um, I'll be working on um, some coastal archaeology um, over the next couple of years um, for my master's thesis yeah then, are there any sites on the coast that you're you're really gonna zero in on or yeah yeah uh, yeah there's one in particular that I worked on um, when I was an undergrad at UMO um, it's a site in Gouldsboro that was uh, pretty significant to me. Mm -hmm. um, it's a small site, but to me, it's it's large. Um, yeah, but they uh, they say that. Uh, do you also like do petroglyph? Yeah, or? I've been looking into that too. Uh, working with um, the Passamaquoddy Tipo, Donald Soctoma. Oh yeah. Um, he started a, a petroglyph project in Machias, and I want to kind of move it inland a little mm -hmm. more and work with the Kennebec River. Uh, petroglyph site. Yeah, that would be really interesting. I, the uh, the the petroglyph symbols. Now, do they know what a lot of those symbols mean? Um, it's all yeah, yes and no. I guess. Uh, I mean, it's all um, you know interpretive analysis on those. Um, yeah. Some say they're you know they're shamanistic, and others um, they've been called doodles. Just doodles, huh? Chris, mm -hmm. didn't your your dad start start that work? Um, on the Canada. Aren't you second-generation yeah. petroglyph person? Yes, uh, working with the Kennebec River. Um, Machias is relatively new to me, and um, Donald has definitely opened my eyes with his interpretive analysis. Um, yeah. And we work along with um, the University of Maine and um, the, the former state archaeologist, I don't know if he's still considered, but Mark Hedden. Okay, um, I don't know He's him, been studying petroglyphs for the last 40 Mm -hmm. years plus. What I think is amazing about that is that they have the same petroglyph symbols on the East Coast as they do in like the Lake Superior area. James? Yeah, well, well those uh, we, we have stories and, and they have stories. Um, actually, they, they have more stories than we do that they came from here. Right. So uh, the people that and, and linguistically yeah we have the we, you know we have the same language group you know i went to a language conference in uh, minneapolis minnesota and you know we sat down and someone said we use tatanka and i and i was like oh this is buffalo meat and i i knew i knew it because that's our language too but they were talking uh you know ojibwe you know. Huh. yeah you know what i'd really like to do at some program in the future is get winona leduc here yeah and and you as well. We talk about uh, and Donald talk about petroglyphs and stories. I think that'd be really interesting. Any comments? Last comments. Well, um, no. I just want to. Uh, we got a couple of minutes here. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, I just wanted to. Uh, there's a lot of exciting things that have been going on in the Penobscot watershed as recent uh, the. Second dam removal in VZ has opened up the um, waterways to sea run fish and uh, to reservation waters. And they're currently building a fish lift at Old Town to get those fish above that dam. To, um, so, but it's uh, I've been I've been spending quite a bit of time at the Great Work site, um, and you can physically see the changes in the land at that place right. now what what i was interested there is because i study place names in that in that set of falls there um the ancient name meant um the bad falls at the site of a bad carry mm -hmm. and um you know there is a lot of like 
bedrock, like jagged ledge there, which I could see that. But there's also a lot of debris in the river, a lot of sediments that were kept by the dam for many years. And so you can see those changes week by week as as that falls. Um, it may take decades for it to get back to that, what our ancestors saw. Um, but it's interesting to see that change. Yeah. I and got a lot wonder... of sea glass out of there, too. Wow, really? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Any last words, Chris? Or? Uh, no, I'm just excited uh, for the future of the culture department and historic preservation. Um, we have a lot of work to do, and I think we're geared up for it. Yeah, great. James, were you going to say one more thing? Yeah, we'll leave one. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Uh, all right. Uh, thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. I want to thank my guest, James Francis uh, and Chris Sokolexis for being on the show. And thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer. And tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs>